Well, we could go home right now and be satisfied, you know, be full. And, you know, you can kind of, when I'm preparing messages, I can kind of feel the direction, the way a service is going between how, by how my prep is going. Sometimes it's like, well, I, I could put this here. And, you know, and then there's other times where it's like, no, you have to put this thing here. And so I think we're going to probably cut a bunch of stuff today because we've already had a great time in his presence. And we've been talking about the nature and the character of God. And it's such an important topic. I try to cover it every year. And we're going to spend a good time in the summer just going over his attributes and his ways. But if you don't have the understanding that you can experience God and you can come to know him, it'll affect how you learn of him. Because it's like learning a story rather than meeting a person. Come on, think about it. Knowing someone, having a relationship, and experiencing them is much different than reading somebody's bio. They went to this school, they did this, you know, they're married to this person, have this many kids. That's different than sitting down and having a meal with someone, right? And so Paul said it, and Jesus said it himself too, that we see the fullness of God reflected in Jesus. And Jesus isn't some unknowable person. He's not some undiscoverable thing. He's someone that we can read his story, and his story comes alive, and he wants to interact and work with you in your day-to-day -day life today. And so God is meant to be seen and experienced and not just talked about. He is meant for you to have a personal relationship. He wants to show up in your life on a day-to-day -day basis. He's not someone you visit. He's someone you live your life with. Come on, it'd be so funny if my wife lived in another town, in another city, that I only ever saw her once a year, or maybe if we're Catholic, we'll do twice, Easter and Christmas, you know. That'd be so funny because it'd be like, no, I, I didn't marry my wife so I could see her twice. I got into relationship with her because I want to be with her every day. And that's how it is with God. He wants to be with you all the time. He wants to be deeply involved in everything we do. And he is meant to be seen and experienced. You know, as I was preparing just before the service, I looked over on my shelf. And there was a book there that I read last year that I really loved. It's called Miracles and the Supernatural Throughout the History of the Church. And it follows the chain of events of the, who the disciples impacted and then who they impacted all through the ears, oh, ears, years, put a Y on there, and all through the different regions. So they explored North Africa and Turkey, and which they'd say is kind of Asia, and uh, they go over to France and they look at what happened in Rome, and, and they go through all these different stories and impact after impact, and it's stories about people experiencing God. And there's a lot of Christianity that's like, oh yeah, the, the great things, we see them in the Bible, but they ended with the apostles. No, no they didn't. Just because you don't know what's happened doesn't mean it ended. There was a chain of events of people who continued to experience God. And why is it important to experience Him and to see Him? Because that can't be taken away from you. If it's just a story to you, Someone can introduce another story and be like, well, it's not really that true. You can't tell me anything different about God. I've got to know him. I've got to experience him. And that can't be taken away from me. So he's meant to be seen and experienced. 
And what I was thinking about while I was looking at that book on the shelf before I came down was there's a story in it of a man named John Chrysostom, and he was the bishop of Constantinople. He was one of the first ones as, uh, as they were really reformatting the church and bringing in structure, and he, he reluctantly became the bishop at Constantinople. He really didn't want to do it. And when he got there, he was on fire for God, and he was doing lots of things, but after 20, 30 years of being there, surrounded by all the religious people who didn't really actually care that much for God, but cared more about the structure, being surrounded by all the politicians of the Eastern Roman Empire, he began to question, does God still do miracles today? And he began to write things like, I, I don't think it happens anymore. I think it's done. But the thing is, as you look at the wider scope of what was going on, there was revival happening in North Africa. There was revival happening throughout parts of Turkey. And just because he didn't see it and he didn't experience it didn't make it not true. And so the environment that you place yourself in and the perspectives of others that you allow to be engrafted on you can change how you experience God. But it doesn't change that he's meant to be experienced. So why don't we go to Exodus chapter 3 this morning and we're going to look at a story about experiencing God. Because every story we see in the Bible is about a story of someone experiencing God, is it not? Yeah. This is what God said, and this is what God did, so we wrote it down. Yeah. Every story. And so in Exodus chapter 3, we find a famous story. You've probably heard it a bunch, but I hope to bring a new perspective on it to you this morning. And in verse, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock, to the back of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, it's interesting when you know the context of this story is Moses didn't know that this was the mountain of God at that time. This just happened to be a mountain that he brought the sheep to or the goats to at that time. And he discovered that it was the mountain of God. And so it's his perspective looking back when he writes, it was Horeb, the mountain of God. It's because that's where I kept meeting God. It's kept where he kept showing up. And so we don't need to know about Moses as he's been on the run for 40 years. Because he had this idea in his head that the children of Israel should be free. And he tried to force it in his own way. And he ended up killing some Egyptians and then they, it was discovered and he had to run and he had to take off. And so he's been in hiding for 40 years. That's a long time. He's in the desert. Not a lot happens in the desert, right? And it says... Next verse, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, throughout the Old Testament, you'll see this statement, the angel of the Lord. And you have to understand that when that statement's there, it's not just talking about some angel coming from God. It is God himself revealing himself to whoever he's wanting to speak with. When it's an actual angel, they tell you, and they usually give the name of the person. But when you see the angel of the Lord throughout this sequence of events, it's God himself revealing himself and so it appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush and so he looked and behold the bush was burning with fire but the bush was not consumed so God shows up he lights this bush on fire and miraculously it doesn't burn that's a pretty cool aspect right there it's not burning but you know that when Moses shows up on the scene it says 
I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why does the bush not burn? What's interesting is Moses didn't say, I'm going to turn aside and meet with God. He turned aside to see the bush. And there's often times in our lives where God will show up and be moving and acting on our behalf or present wanting to reveal himself, and we don't even recognize that it's him. And so some people can look back across their life and say, oh, I just don't know where God's been. I'm like, you just weren't looking in the right places. And so Moses was enamored with the bush. And so the, all of our stories with God don't always start because we saw, started out looking for God. But it doesn't mean that he's not there. And as we're walking out our lives, we'll, we'll find him in places we didn't expect to find him. And it says in verse 4, this is very important. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God was present, but nothing happened until he recognized that Moses stopped and was ready to discover. This is important because sometimes we never get to the place of stopping long enough to discover anything. We live busy lives in the society today, don't we? We are so much busier than people 100 years ago. There's more things to do, more, more things to be distracted with. And it's, sometimes it's hard just to stop long enough to listen. Now, it's not something I'd be like, oh, you guys are bad. That was me this morning. I had a really busy weekend, and by the time I woke up this morning, my brain was still going a million times a minute, and I was kind of like, oh, I got to get ready, got to do this. And I was like, no, I know i got to stop. I turned on some music. I opened my Bible, and I said, God, speak to me. And you know, when you do that, it's funny how you find his peace. It's funny how you find that rest that you would think you would find in being satisfied by all the other things you had to do. But he brings peace like no other. He brings rest like no other. And so the Lord saw that he turned aside, that he was taking a moment, and then call, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he's like, here I am. <laughs> you know, that's got to be a freaky moment for him. He's like, I turned aside to see a burning bush. Why isn't it burning? Now it's talking to me. Come on, guys. This is, an, this is an exciting story because it's like, this does not happen. So all of a sudden, the bush starts talking to him. And, he said, and it says to him, don't draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for this place where you stand is holy ground. What did God say to him there? He's saying, take a moment and honor this moment. And so when we find God in unusual places, stop and honor it. Stop and honor it. It's so easy to be like, oh, that was nice. Be like, no, God, I recognize you're in this moment. You're in this place. You're involved in what's going on right now. Honor it. And so he told him to take off his shoes, and he did it. And he says this to him. Moreover, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Why did he say that? He's introducing himself. Moses didn't know God. Forty years on the run, what do we know from before that 40 years? Yes, he was born in an Israelite family, but he was raised in an Egyptian palace. Yes, 
His mother was able to be his wet nurse when he was young. But there was a lot of things that were taught to Moses that were now going to be unnecessary moving forward. And God is saying, I'm the one from the past. I'm the one that's important. And the Lord says in the next verse, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of the taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And isn't that good to know that God is not ignorant of what's really going on in your life? Because yeah. sometimes you're like, oh, he's so far away. Does he really care? Does he really know? And the answer is, yes, he knows, and he deeply cares, and he wants to get involved. He knew what was going on. He knew where they had gotten to. And he's come to deliver. And so wherever you find yourself, we need to understand God is there to deliver. If you want out, there's a way out. And sadly, I think a lot of Christians don't actually want out of some of their troubles because we've gotten so used to getting sympathy from others because of them. Man, I, there's so many people that I've come across as sick, and I'm like, can I pray? And they're like, oh, well, I know, you know, oh, yes, pray for me. But they want to keep it because people go, oh, how are you doing today? Yeah. <laughs> you doing okay? Oh, how's that back? Has it, has it gotten a little better? Oh, you know, I'm making it through. People pet their problems. Don't be a, peop a problem petter. I'm serious. Don't be a problem petter. Not for yours, not for others. Build them up, but don't empower their problem. The Lord says, I've seen the, opp the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Isn't it good that when God delivers you out of something, he doesn't bring you into another crap situation? Come on. It's not like he's going to take you from one problem to the next. It says, no, I'm bringing you out of the problem into a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, which means that God has great things on the other side of the problem you may be in right now. He says it's a good land. It's a large land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And should we expect anything different from God. What did we say? That the fullness of God's character and nature is revealed in Jesus? Well, what did Jesus say about his own father in Luke chapter 11? He says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he get, offer him a scorpion? If you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so he gives us this perspective of God that if you know how to be good, God knows how to be gooder. I stole that from Pastor Rob, and he always says it keeps getting gooder and gooder. It's not grammar, but it's good. Er. <laughs> and so he says, if you guys know, know what is the, the bin, bare minimum expectation of a parent, come on. Yeah. Don't we expect that? Parents should feed their children. Yeah. They should take care of them. Yes. Why would we expect anything less from a good, 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 gooder father? And so when he says, I've, I've heard the problem, it's kind of like the kids playing out in the backyard. You can tell the difference between I want sympathy from my brothers and I'm actually hurt. There's two different cries. Come on, parents, I can see Katie shaking her head. She knows there's a difference. 
in the way they cry. And when you hear that cry, I'm actually hurt and I need help. It's like, oh, I better go check in on that. I better go soothe that wound. I better go brush off those knees and wipe those tears away. And if we can expect that from a natural father, whatever the hurt is right now, a hurt on the heart, a hurt on the body, a hurt in the mind, he's there to soothe. He's there to support. He's there to provide. Hallelujah. So he says, I've, I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, when we, God comes into the situation, there's an aspect of Christianity that thinks like, oh, it'll just be so easy all the time. And the answer is no, it's not going to be. From Egypt to the promised land was quite the journey. It was a journey filled with miracles, which we read and we celebrate and we expect to see miracles in our life, but it was a hard journey. You want to live in the desert for that long? I don't. I spent the, yesterday out in the sun all day at baseball games, and by the end of the day, my brain was not functioning because the sun had baked it right out of me. It's like I, I, one kid came in, I'm like, good run, Henry, good run. And then the next kid came in, I'm like, and, and I'm like, yeah, that's great. And I'm like, well, one run in. And the guy beside me is like, no, that's two. You just told him good job a second ago. I'm like, I know, the sun's been hot. Forty years in the desert is a long time. And they had ups and downs, right? It was like, okay, we're sick of this manna stuff. How about food fell from heaven? I didn't have to grow it. I didn't have to buy it. I did, it just fell from heaven, and there it was. But they're like, no, I want some meat. So God crashes a flock of birds into their camp so that it's knee-deep in birds. That's awesome. They're like, we need some water. He just takes a stick and goes, and rock splits and water shoots out. And so out of every aspect of hardship came a supply of provision and goodness from God. But it didn't mean that the journey was always easy, but the journey always ended well. And so between your Egypt and your promised land, there's going to need some faith. There's going to need some holding on. And there's going to be some hard times, but there's going to be some good miracles along the way. So I'm bringing you up to a good and large land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And it's kind of like when you hit that point, you're like, God, there's people sitting in my land. Why would you tell me to do something? And as I was reading that the other day, it struck me. When God's telling people to step out in certain areas, and he's like, I want you to start this business, they're like, well, there's somebody that already does that. Come on. Oh, that market's a little saturated. Do you not think he knows that? Come on, I know this is a word for somebody this morning. When he asks you to do something, you may look and be like, there's no space for me. God makes space. You walk the journey. You go the direction, he said. He says, I'm bringing to you a land where there happens to be a lot of ites in it at the moment. But it's okay, they can go. 
And he says, now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression to which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And the next verse we're going to read, I want you to take note of because this has been in so many people's mouths, including mine. Who am I that I should do that? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, if we look at, we're talking qualifications, who better? You got to go and interact with the Egyptian higher-ups, who you grew up with. It's most likely your stepbrother or your uncle, or we're not sure of the connection, is the one that's sitting on the throne at that time. Who better to go and talk to them? Who better than the person 40 years ago Wanted to do it in his own strength. And so we can always come up with different excuses. We know that Gideon used those exact same words. He says, I'm with you, you mighty man of valor. And he's like, who, me? I, I'm the weakest, the least. And Come on. We've all heard the words. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Well, God says to him, I will certainly. And that's not just a word for Moses. That's a word for all of us. There is not a moment where God is not present. Right here. Right now. Next week, when you're sitting at your office looking for, what do I do? What do I do? And he says, this will be a sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You know, when I think about that, that's not a sign that I would really want. We often say, give me a sign now, here. God's saying, you'll know I've been with you when you're standing back in this place after having done what I told you to do. Come on, isn't that what he said? God just said to him? It's not like it's going to be a now sign. It's a, you'll know at the end of the journey, I was with you. And that's exactly what happened. We got all the plagues that brought them out miraculously so that they came out. There was not one sick or feeble one among them. They walked out of Egypt with all the gold and silver of Egypt. They came out. They went through the Red Sea. It got split supernaturally. The entire army of the Egyptians were wiped out behind them, which you know why that was such a great miracle? Because in one month, they can't just go around the Red Sea and take them again. He's like, I just got to get rid of them all together. That's an amazing miracle. And so they get to the mountain of God after miracle, after miracle, after miracle. And he's like, then you'll know. Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And so we've said everything we've said so far this morning to get to this point. What's your name, God? Why is Moses asking this? 
He's been raised in a society where you, hey, Osiris, Anubis, Ra, all these other gods. And he says, what's your name? You told me you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't really know a lot about them. What is your name? What should I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. That's not a name. <laughs> that is not a name. God had many names that he could have given to Moses right here in this moment, and it would have been just another name for him to heap up on the pile of other gods that he already knew. But what did he choose to say to Moses instead? I am who I am. Well, what does that mean, and why should we even care? Well, in the Hebrew, it's hayah, ashur, hayah. And ashur just simply means that, what, or who. And so here they've translated it who. I am who I am. But what does hayah mean? It means to be, to exist, or to be in existence. What did he say to Moses in that moment when he said, I am who I am? He's like, I'm the only one that matters. It wasn't that you don't need a name. It doesn't matter what my name. I was in the past. I'm right here in your present, and I will be in your future. You don't need a name. I'm the only one that matters, and I'm the only one that exists. And that's so important in today's culture that you remember there is God and God alone. I keep seeing it over and over again. Christians are interjecting themselves in conversations online. They probably shouldn't be involved in Online is not a good uh, way to project your faith because you can't project tone, you can't project intention. And so you, I see Christians making stupid comments like they see something they don't like and like, oh, you need God. And evidently somebody comes back and says, which one? There are thousands of them. That's what Moses' problem was here. No, there isn't. He said, I am the only one. I am. I exist. I'm in existence. You don't need a name. There is just God and God alone. Everything else is a pale imitation trying to be something that they are not. Every God we read about in the Old Testament is just some demon trying to get his 15 minutes of fame. There is God and God alone. And no one can touch his supremacy. No one can ever think to measure up to be as powerful as he is so when you think about the God who's revealing himself to you who's on your side and who wants to deliver what can compare to him nothing what did John say in first John he said greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world the entirety of all of the fullness of it God is greater and will be so significantly greater for all eternity. Nothing has ever touched him. Nothing ever will touch him in his greatness. And so he says, what is your name? And he says, the only one that matters. You don't need a name. I am. I exist. And that is enough to shift every situation. Woo. We can think back to what Paul said in Acts chapter 17 when he was preaching in Athens, and we read this a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating. He gets up in verse 22 of chapter 17, and he stands in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And so here the Athenians are in a similar situation to the Egyptians. 
They've got all these different gods, this aspect and that aspect. And he said he found one that says, to the unknown God. So it's kind of like, well, if we missed one here, here's a little monument just in case we did, don't know your name yet. We've forgotten you. And so Paul's using that to reveal. He says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it. And since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. He made the world and everything in it. This is such a significant concept in, in, when we look through the history of religions, particularly in the Canaanite region where the Israelites came out of, because they, they had what this thing is basically, we'll call it the primordial goop, in which all of their gods kind of emerged from, and they all controlled a simple aspect. When we are introduced to Elohim, the God of the Israelites, which we'll get into that name a lot in down the road, but when we're introduced to that, he's the only one in which everything else comes out of him. Everything exists and consists because of who he is. Everything comes out, including you. You had your start in him, and you'll have your finish in him. Amen. Hallelujah. He says, God made this world and everything in it. And since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. There's something really important in that verse, though. You don't worship God for him. You worship God for you. He doesn't need your worship. And religion has put a lot of pressure on people. Like, you got to worship God. you got to worship God. He, you've been designed to worship. Not because he needs it, though. Because when you worship, you're interacting and discovering and learning of the character and the nature of God. And so it's not a, I have to worship want to worship why would I not want to be with someone so awesome why would I not want to open up my heart to the I am who I am and so God said to Moses I am who I am and he said and this you shall say to the children of Israel I am has sent me to you what's his name only one that matters the only one that exists and the only one that's got the solution to your problem the children of Israel and this is the concept of which everything is built off of you need to settle within your heart that God is there that he exists that he is for you he's not against you and he's present right now because what does Hebrews chapter 11 6 say it says without faith it's impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is. He is. That he is. And he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And we've got that so backwards a lot of the times. People are like, I will seek because I want. No, I seek because he is. And he's the only one that's worthy. And he's a rewarder. How can you not find the good large land filling with, flowing with milk and honey when you're with the God whom everything flows from? That's secondary. And we really need to remind ourselves of that. God is first in everything, and everything just flows out from there. 
So I want to end with a really funny story from the Bible. I love this story. And in 1 Samuel chapter 5, at this point in time, God has confined himself to live in this little box called the Ark of the Covenant. He doesn't live in that box any longer. He lives inside of you, and he goes wherever you go. But at this point in time, he has shrunk himself to be like, this is where, if you want worship, come where the Ark is, and let's worship here. And so Israel was getting off track. King Saul was not a very good king. And they lose the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines. And the Philistines took the Ark of God and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashad. And when the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and they set it by Dagon. Dagon was their god that they served and they worshipped and they thought was pretty great. And so they bring the Ark of God where his presence is and they set it in Dagon's temple kind of like, look what we've done. We've done something great for you, Dagon. Here's one of their idols and we'll put it beside ours. And it says, when the people of Ashad arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they set it back up in its place. And so throughout the night while everybody was sleeping, God's just kind of like, yeah, I'm not having this. <laughs> Pushes it over. <laughs> like, I don't serve other gods. They serve me. I'm bigger and greater than everything else. And so he just kind of like pokes it over. <laughs> and there it's laying on the ground the next day. And it says, when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And, the and this is the next one. They set him back up. And he says, and then they come back in. It says, the head of Dagon and the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. And only Dagon's torso was left. So they set it back up again. And God's like, no, 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 we're not having this. Pushes it a little harder this time and breaks it into pieces on the threshold. It's kind of like God's like, he's a jealous God. He's like, no, I don't share worship with anybody. Come on, and he's not changed. He doesn't share your life with anybody. He will increase your life. He will let things grow. He will make you larger than you ever thought. What does Jesus say about the kingdom of God? It's like a seed, mustard seed. When it's planted, it grows. When you put God into your life, it grows. It grows, and everything begins to increase. But he doesn't share worship with anybody. He is who he is. Just like he said to Moses that day, I am who I am. I am the one who exists. There is nothing else that matters. And so we need to settle in our hearts that he is still here. He is still present. He's still knowable, discoverable. He is for you, not against you. Because the next verse says, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. Which means it's to you. I am that I am. I am who I am is the only thing that matters. He will conquer all because he's the only one that is worth anything. Amen? Get up on your feet this morning. Father, we thank you. We take a moment just to worship your greatness. We know that you are great and greatly to be praised. Nothing else and no one else is worthy of that place in which you are to hold. So we go ahead and we declare, yes, you exist. 
and you are in my life, you are in this place, you are walking with me. There's never a moment that I'll ever wake up where you're not with me and not for me. There's never a morning where I'll wake up where you are not good. There's never a morning that I will wake up where you will not be willing to grab hold with me and walk this life together. And so we praise you, Lord. Yes, we worship your name, Lord. We worship your holy name forever. Jesus, you are, you are, you are. You are all that I need, Lord. All that I need. Yes. Woo. Hallelujah. Oh, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus, Jesus. Well, in just a moment, our Word Care team is going to be right up here at the front. They would love to pray with you, believe with you, agree with you, celebrate with you. Whatever it is that you need, come on, just go ahead and spend some time with them. They would love to be someone who can be a rock for you this morning. We thank you for it, Lord. We thank you for your love, Lord. We thank you for this time we've had this morning, Lord. We thank you for your presence that has been in this place. But we know that it doesn't end here. You go with us. You go with us. Hallelujah. Woo. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Hallelujah. Well, I think I'm good unless you got something. If you'd like to give this morning, you can do so at wordchurch.ca forward slash give. There's envelopes in the seats in front of your basket at the back. We just say thank you for whatever it is you choose to do. We don't like to put a lot of big pressure on here. We know that it's between you and God. It says, as a man purposes in his heart, so let him give. Which means we have to stop and we have to ask, God, what do you want me to do? And then we're obedient. And it says that he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully, and he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And so often we're like, oh, we look at that as quantity, but it's not. It's obedience. What did he say, and did you do it? That determines whether it's bountiful or sparingly. And it says that God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. And so my only wisdom for you this morning is ask and do what he said. And our job is just we just say, thanks. God, we just bless what is given today. We multiply it. We thank you, Lord, that you are God of all. And we know we always have more than enough because you're always in this place. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, let's have some coffee and great fellowship. Church doesn't end here. The best parts of church happen before and after.